Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Moya Lothian-McLean, contributing editor at Navarro Media. We spoke to Moya about starting out in journalism when she was a student, her stint at Galdem and her current role at Navarra, and the differences between journalism and content creation. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Moya. Welcome to the podcast. It's, it's great to have you on. We wanted to start off with this piece from Vice from 2015 that you sent over about living in rural England at the time of Odd Future. Could you tell us a bit about where you were in your life at, at that stage, presumably still at university, and you know how the piece came about and whether you'd had a long-standing interest in writing and journalism by that point? Yeah, of course. So this piece, uh, what it felt like living in rural England at the time of Odd Future was the first piece that I wrote for money um, that got any attention. I'd written one uh, very terrible piece before that for Vice, but this was the first one that I wrote where I thought, hang on, I might actually be okay at this. Um, And so the way this came about was as you probably can tell from the title of the piece i originally am from rural england i'm from a place called herefordshire uh, and growing up there i always wanted to go to the big city and the big lights and i always wanted to be a writer but i didn't really envisage how exactly this would be done i didn't want to study journalism i wanted to study something else at university and i I didn't really have a clear plan and I also didn't have much structure about how I was going to do that. I just thought, okay, it's going to fall into place. And sadly, it, it actually did that. Um, so when I was at university, I started writing a music blog, which was very pretentious. And it was called Orpheus Speaks, which is, there's a version of it still out there somewhere if you want to find it and embarrass me. But it was, it was obviously written about, you know, Orpheus and Greek mythology. And it was all the music that I liked because I think a lot of young writers who don't have clear ways into the industry often start with something like music. There's a lot of music journalists I've met um, or people who used to be music journalists because that's one of the places we feel most confident talking about. A, it's opinion, but B, it's also writing about something that is so vivid and appeals to a lot of people um, that you can kind of hold forth on without having had much experience of the rest of life. Um, I didn't feel as confident, for example, writing about politics when I was 19 20 which is probably a good thing in the long run um anyway so i wrote this music blog and i wrote it in the exact style of vice like i just ripped off vice because vice was my favorite publication at the time which probably tells you something about how old i am um when i was in you know rural england just the coolest thing in the world was vice uh, <laughs> which is such a classic teenage opinion to have anyway so i wrote this music blog in the style of vice and because i was growing up at a time when you know you had these social media networks or like twitter which was starting to get really big um i was thrown into the path of a lot of people that i normally wouldn't have had any interaction with so wrote this music blog at university and kept posting on twitter and somehow the head of music advice saw it 
And he said to one of the people who worked at the now defunct um, music vertical, Noisy, could you get in touch and ask this girl to write some freelance articles? So it was really lucky. It was just lucky and I, that I was at this point of time, that I was at, on the internet at a time when you could cross paths with all these different people. Um, and that also, it was small enough that someone like the head of music advice would notice what I was doing and actually take the time to read it. Whereas now I think it's so oversaturated, that's far less likely. Um, so I started freelancing for Vice when I was in my second year of university and began writing about what I knew, which was music and rural England. And that's how this piece came about. How do you feel about that sort of style of writing now? And particularly, as you you know, alluded to the, the sort of collapse of some of Vice's verticals. Um, how do you feel about that kind of era and that kind of start of your career? Isn't that's a really interesting question because I think a lot of the time I feel I, I don't feel embarrassed I think that's the wrong word but I do feel like because I started in a space that was so sort of based on what I knew didn't require that extra level of knowledge and upskilling it almost felt too easy and it feels like now now I write in politics I'm sort of dogged by a constant case of you haven't trained in this, you don't have the skills for this, you're just winging it, which I guess to an extent is kind of true. And the knowledge that perhaps the work that I would have done much younger to become a writer who felt like they were worthy of writing about this and felt like they had the knowledge to write about the things I write about now was not done because I was doing these other things that came much easier. But again, it's part of the process. As a young person who got into media at a time when it was both more democratic in some ways, such as like the rise of the internet, digital media, et cetera, but also losing quality in other ways. So, you know, you didn't have that same training. You don't have the same sort of fellowships. You don't have local journalism routes into media. So you could get in, but once you were in, you may not have, you know, someone telling you, okay, this is how you go out and do reporting. This is how you go to a patch. This is the key skills you need to learn. This is how you check a source. Those were all sort of patchwork skills that I've picked up over the years through trial and error. So when I look back on that early writing, I think because it's it was easy for me, there is a sense of it was too easy. You didn't earn this properly. You should have worked harder. I think I have a real, my friend always says that I have a real Protestant sense of like suffering. <laughs> and that I have to attach sufferance in order for me to feel like something's successful or that I've earned it, which is perhaps one for a therapist to unpick further, especially as I'm not, I wasn't brought up Protestant at all. I was brought up completely <laughs> agnostic, but I still imbibe those elements, which is very, very English. <laughs> and how do you feel now about that kind of genre of internet nostalgia writing you know I thought it was interesting looking at the piece about how you're you know the, the period that you're talking about is three years before the time of publication which you know when you're a teenager is, is a long time but you know in the grand scheme of things it's quite a, a short span and you know it, it, that's something people have done quite extensively like look how this this hugely rapidly shifting online culture has changed how do you feel about about that kind of you know internet nostalgia writing now looking back at it. The way I feel about that internet nostalgia writing is it's absolutely something a teenager would be drawn to. But now it's something that I would tread much more carefully about before making grand proclamations. As you say, being a teenager and writing about something that happened three years ago does feel like a lifetime. But 
you know, when you're 27, even though that's still very young, something that happened three years ago is not a lifetime at all. And it's nowhere near enough of a period to really reflect, I think, upon the significance of things that occurred and happened. Um, it'd probably be much more interesting to write about Odd Future now from the perspective of me as a 27 year old, but I also wouldn't do that because now only 10 years <laughs> doesn't seem that long either. Um, and I think internet nostalgia writing has really cannibalized itself. Of course I would be, of course I would gravitate to that when I was younger because it was right in front of me as a burgeoning trend and something that I could easily tap into to talk about. Um, but now it's something that we do constantly because there's this, this cycle of sort of a thing happening, a thing being digested, a thing being confined to the realms of nostalgia is even quicker. Trends go around much, much faster. This And writing about them almost confines them to the past immediately. So we document things in real time and then we immediately archive them. Um, and when I say we, what I mean is sort of like the content churn as opposed to just writing. This this churn of constant content, which is constantly trying to talk about something that's happening in the immediate sense. And then two weeks later, it's old because it's been written about by so many people, it's almost feels fatigued. It's, it's a really interesting way of strangling culture before it's even begun and confining it to the sort of the dustbin of history. And then a couple of years later, you'll have, oh, this 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 background again. Do you remember this? Everyone's doing this core, you know, cottage core, um, norm core. Everything's got a core. Everything becomes this aesthetic trend. And I think that really speaks to the cycles of the internet, that rather than something just being a subculture, it's just a quick fire trend that is documented and written about by sort of like these cultural sites, lifestyle journalism, et cetera, which is where I cut my teeth. How did that piece uh, resonate at the time? And what did it mean in terms of other journalistic opportunities for you? At the time, I thought it was the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> At the time, I thought I was an anthropologist, um, you know, studying studying the intricacies of a teenage existence. And at the time, lots of people responded to it really positively because I was surrounded by people my own age and the people's advice as well, a couple of years older. So it was something that really spoke to the audience I was writing for, which I suppose doesn't denote good writing, but denotes a writing that has struck a chord, um, which is something I'm also having to learn there's a difference between just because something is very popular and something is, um, you know, goes viral, etc. does not necessarily mean that it's good writing. And some of the things that I've written that have spoken the most to people, I don't really think of as good writing, but perhaps the the value of it is not doesn't lie in whether I think it's good writing, it's whether it does speak to people. A question. Um, but yeah, at the time it it basically just got Vice to want to work with me more. And I also also got me more friends, which was funny. People really were really I cannot state how cool Vice was to young people in that area, especially ones who were I was going to university in London. So especially ones that were sort of sighted around London and probably come from the shires, et cetera, down to London to try and build this cool new life for themselves. Um, I remember somebody coming up to me at university who'd never talked to me before and being like, oh yeah, you write for Vice, don't you? Which was fascinating study into the popularity and hierarchy of <laughs> um, university students at King's College London. Uh, yeah, so it got me more opportunities. And then I went on and I worked at my favorite, well, as an intern at my favorite ever music magazine. So Fader, which was really big in this era, they um, had launched a new like English office in the middle of Shoreditch around the corner from Vice. And I was their first ever intern. Sadly, I think that branch has folded now. But uh, yeah, so it got me further into the door of music journalism and further, just more opportunities because this is something that has always existed since uh, the inception of digital media and probably 
before in different ways. But once you get start getting a couple of bylines and people saw your name on the internet, they would start snapping you up too. It, it becomes a sort of cosign situation. But the problem with that now is I think there's just like so much less quality control and you don't see the work of the editors behind. So you get these young writers who are snapped up by the industry and the editor will have done like a really, really big job on making that copyright rather than working with the writer per se to actually hone them and then another person will commission them and the editor will again have to do a really big job of making the copy publishable but the writer themselves is not improving at all because you're not they're not getting that hands-on working experience you're not getting that mentorship you need you're just being passed from one publication to another and the editor's rewriting the piece for you essentially and how did things progress beyond that particularly when you get this job at stylist in 2016 how was your subsequent path yeah, I mean, the, th the thing about my path through journalism is it's been very blessed and so uneventful as a result of that. The, when I went to Stylist, I just graduated from university. I was going to go into advertising because I didn't know what else to do. I was going to become a media planner. Don't know what a media planner is. I was offered a job as a media planner. I had no idea what it was. Uh, still don't really. Um, so yeah, Stylist, I just applied to on a whim. I'd applied to loads and loads of jobs that clearly were not a good fit for me because I didn't have qualifications or experience in that realm. I just had my freelance writing and stylists were looking for an editorial assistant. I was, I'd read the magazine on my commutes. If people aren't aware of stylist, it was a, it is a freemium magazine, which has now gone mostly digital, which was set up in the sort of magazine print boom along with a fraternal, fraternal magazine shortlist, which is sadly folded. But yeah, so it was given out on the tube. So a lot of people read stylist and I'd come across it and I thought it was smart and insightful for something that was so predicated on what's often seen as sort of like throwaway frivolous form of journalism which is like women's lifestyle it, it, it really did the classic like feminism diluted which was fine for me at the time it was it was as good a place I could expect to work um anyway so I'd applied to them as an editorial assistant didn't expect to get the job somehow using a mix of handmade collages and talking to them awkwardly about how much I love dancing they gave me a job and I couldn't believe it I could not believe how this had happened and I think that feeling dogged me for quite a while that I shouldn't really be in this office that I didn't know anything about first being a woman and also women's lifestyle really I was just like a very awkward gawky student but what I did know is um, I liked music and I think that was something they really wanted me to bring to the magazine which was the sense of culture from a young person's perspective and who was cool. When you were there did you get that kind of feedback and training and um, insight from editors you worked with in a way that lots of publications don't offer? I think I was given a lot of training and opportunities at Stylus that really pulled me up uh, I was, you know, they immediately I was working print and later than digital. So I got this double handed sort of, this is how you build articles. This is how you structure something. They let me write print features. They gave me a chance. They didn't just put me on the sidelines making coffee. You actually were really involved. So I was managing both the editor's diaries, but they were also sending me out to interview people like Mabel and, you know, Zoe Kravitz. They, they let me go and do those things and they really believed in me and invested in me as a young journalist. Um, and yeah, you, you'd learn on the job there. So while I wasn't going out and doing, you know, this is how you work a microphone, this is how you do patch recordings. I was, I was definitely doing, look, you need a dictaphone, you need an earbug and 
you need to ask them this and you need to make sure you have this disclaimer and you have a right to reply, all of that kind of stuff, which is really good. And then obviously the practical skills needed in digital journalism, SEO, etc. So I learned about both print and then I learned about content, which I think of two very different things um, that don't get sort of discerned between enough. Uh, yeah, so it was it was a really good crash course and I, I'm so grateful for the three years I spent there. What, in your view, is the difference between print and content? Uh, well, I think I think print is obviously much more traditional. Ob- obviously, there are exceptions to this, but I think on the whole, print is much more what we think of as traditional journalism. So you've got long form, you've got reporting, you have features that are sort of in-depth, explore an issue further. Whereas you're thinking of content, that's something that you want quick fire consumption. It's to be put out, it's to be seen. Often content I would describe as something that you will be thinking about the analytics of it. Whereas print, not necessarily, obviously you'll be like, we have a readership, etc. But content, as I said, it's to be consumed immediately. It's rapid pace, digital based. And I think often her companies are lower quality because of the other pressures that are on there. Something interesting about Stylist was obviously it was run on advertisements. And as you got a real crash course in the way the industry was moving because the print side became much less important in some ways. And the pandemic I know really impacted them because suddenly people were not commuting. You weren't getting the magazine. So advertisers weren't getting any bang for their buck. But that entire model rested on advertising. And when I went to other newsrooms papers where I thought that advertising wasn't as important and I quickly was assured it was it was it was fascinating to see everyone following this content model which was you know one day I'd be writing up a feature story and then the next day I'd be doing something like having to write about Ariana Grande's amazing speech that she just gave really empowering like all these classic buzz phrases that you put in to grab people for about two seconds. It was this low quality content churn. Um, and that's something I've done a lot of in my career because I I came up at a time when content churn was something that's so present in newsrooms. It's something I, I'm not proud of like engaging in that and I don't see it as something that you necessarily have to do, but I'm very thankful I did because it makes me understand these systems much more and understand what exactly is wrong in media and how much the industry relies on sort of private money which doesn't equate to good journalism. I think actually for a lot of young journalists they do have to do the kind of content churn aspect of things while they're finding their feet. Um, I wondered actually while you're at Stylist how many of those pieces you're expected to produce versus the kind of featurey interviewee type um, articles. Yeah, of course. At Stylist, so at Stylist, I had two regular print pages, which would those ones were just like sort of one was called Elsewhere, where you collected news stories from around the world, and then I had a back. Did I do the back page? I think I did the back page. I had two regular pages I had to produce. That shows how bad my memory is getting. Wow, that I can't remember that. That was such a huge part of my life producing those two pages. Um, so yeah, I had at least one regular page. Let's put it that way. I had one regular page I had to produce at least, which was called Elsewhere. And then, you know, the the sort of print features would come as and when. Uh, I'd say maybe every couple of months that I do a print feature. Then I also got to do travel. So I got to do a lot of press trips. That was another interesting thing about working in sort of the tail end of print journalism at its peak because all the press trips were these like really lucrative things that everyone was excited to go on and slowly you saw this real animosity appear towards influencers because the press trips weren't going to the journalists anymore and they hated that this perk was being taken away and instead the the sort of like PRs were 
sending uh, these influencers, you get them more bang for their buck on these press trips. So you saw this journalism as something that had a lot of perks starts to dec- start to decrease in importance within that hierarchy of you know advertising. Um, but in terms of producing, yeah, so I'd, I produced one one regular page for the magazine every week, and then I had various bits I had to help out with, like scoop, etc., the, the regular features, and then occasionally I'd do these fe- these other features, these interviews, and then in, when I was working digital, it was about five stories a day. Um, yeah, and it was. That that very that helped set me up for when I had to go and do other viral news gathering, etc. But some of that would be if I did something like a longer feature in digital, which is another thing they were really good about. If I pitched something, then the magazine didn't want it; they would just let me write it on digital. So long as I was producing some sort of content, so I wrote, wrote a lot of features in that time, which, if you look back, were good for cutting my teeth on, but uh, probably don't hold much weight. <laughs> If you actually dig into them too deeply and the sentiments, because I was a 21 year old opining on the world as if I knew everything. How do you feel? I mean, that's a, a kind of ferocious rhythm of production to have to achieve. And, and as, as Rachel said, like it's, it's not unknown in the, in the current media landscape. I mean, how do you feel about that as a, a way in or, a, you know, because it seems in some ways, not completely, but that the dial has moved away from that kind of, you know, very clickbaity way of of doing things do you do you think that was just the way it was or do you think that there's that you know there needs to be an adjustment away from that both for the the media diet that we produce and the kind of career opportunities that young people have do you think the dial has moved i don't think the dial has moved young people i talk to in the media at the moment who often come to me trying to get advice because i'm only a couple years older and they would say oh you know how did you do this uh they all sort of have the same path which is they've written a couple of freelance pieces and then they're trying desperately to get some shifts because staff jobs are so rare where they can build up their portfolio further and some of them will be charged with these longer features but if they then graduate from university which is often these university grads sadly again we're really missing people who didn't go to university in the industry then they have to get a job so they're trying initially to get that sort of like paying work within the industry and they find themselves on these shift desks where they're doing this news churn so i i wouldn't i wouldn't say from what i've seen it's changed if you have evidence to the contrary i would be very happy but what i feel about this is it's both not equipping young journalists with the skills necessary they need in order to be journalists as opposed to content creators which is fine you know create content but a lot of these people want to be journalists which is a very different set of skills um and you can have those two things alongside each other i would say that i now have the skills to be both a journalist and to do sort of content churn but if you're just every day having to rewrite stories from the internet and post them at a rapid pace with no time for editing etc beyond sort of like a quick sub edit from one very overworked middle editor then you're not you're not going to learn any of the skills necessary to really strike out on your own and do the sort of freelance reporting that you might want to do your your options are much more limited and then you're wedded to this job because you need the meager pay it's providing and often you are having to be located in a very expensive city in order to do that which used to just be london but now you're seeing prices in terms of like rent etc rise in you know manchester and these other hubs um so I, th- I think it's still a massive trap for young journalists. And what I also see is like move towards sort of like personal branding as the way of getting these jobs, as a way of standing out. And there's so much competition amongst these young people, but it's not healthy competition. It's really upsetting. I, I was talking to this young person that I mentored and they were saying they'd won an award and their friends had like in journalism had got very angry about them winning this award because 
they had also you know been nominated and this this idea of like standing out from the pack as you know winning winning awards or doing anything and it's so fierce there that any sort of achievement of someone else's is no longer seen as just like their achievement it's seen as a slight upon this person because it's really individualistic and i think social media contributes to that massively because people are just posting their wins constantly um and trying to produce the self-branding and it also leads to the rise of the journal request culture which is what i call you see this everywhere you know journal request is a very classic hashtag that journalists use on online which is when they're looking for sources but with young journalists I see it used constantly for the most basic stuff because they don't know how to do the researching. They don't know how to just go out and try and find somebody. So they'll be looking like specific case studies where they'll be like, I need a 31-year-old who's dated someone in the last year who liked Harry Potter. And they'll be like, hashtag journey request. It's like, you can you can go and find that person. You have to go and find that person. You have to like hone these skills, but they don't have the time to and they don't know how to. And that's something that's really missing, that training again. And it's, it's just sad because a lot of people have paid about nine grand a year to go to journalism school and they at the end they think they're guaranteed a job but those jobs aren't there in the same way it's shift work uh so it's, it's dog eat dog and you really see that both within the quality of what's being put out and the lack of skills that young people are graduating with that they can actually apply hi it's artemis the producer of always take notes I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with contributing editor at Navarra Media, Moya Lothian-McLean. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. And this week, we're going to hear from the libel lawyer, journalist and author, Alex Wade, on a time in his career he failed. A very good memory I have of this is one of the first good freelance gigs I got from The Independent on Sunday was to write a piece about climbing Mount Elbrus in Russia. I was commissioned to write 1,500 words for a single-page spread. The week of writing the piece, I read a double-page spread by Simon Calder, the uh, legendary independent travel writer. And I thought to myself in my naivety, I bet they'd love it if I wrote two double pages for them, which would be about 3,000 words, not 1,500 words. So I duly filed 3,000 words only for Mike Higgins, the editor at the time, to come back to me and say, Alex, I asked for 1,500 words. I don't want 3,000. Now, Mike, at that point, confronted with so much extra verbiage, could have just said, look, I'm not interested, forget it. But actually, he took the time to read what I'd written, and he said, you know what, you do write well. Please have a look at it and edit it down to 1,500 words. I went away, uh, took the 1500 words off and that was um, duly published in The Independent. What I learned from that was never ever file over your word count, uh, respect what editors ask you to do. And I also learned from uh, Mike, who was so generous with his time, to try and help other people as well. So when uh, writers or journalists, um, and when I've been in editing as well in previous roles, I always try and remember that as well and try and help people along rather than take the... Um, very Fleet Street-esque view of some uh, journalists of um, sorry uh, and just being abrupt and rude and killing the piece. That was Alex Wade. And if you were interested in what Alex had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. But for now, back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Moya Lothian-McLean. I wanted to ask specifically about this, this stylist piece you sent over on money, which 
um, I think both Rachel and I enjoyed enjoyed reading. And it's, um, as I think you know, it's a theme of the podcast that we always ask about money um, on the show and how it's interacted with people's writing lives. So could you tell us both about that as an assignment, about how it came about and how you went about executing it? And then also about your, you know, your own financial experience breaking into the industry, which does sound like it's been you know, precarious at times. Yes, of course. So the piece about overdrafts came about because I was in my overdraft and I was in my overdraft every single week. And I was getting, as, as I write about in this piece, I talk about getting all these texts that was in my unarranged overdraft. I was massively in debt essentially. And, but it was, it was called an overdraft. And I was just getting to that age where the light bulbs switch on your head. You're like, this isn't an overdraft. I'm in debt. I'm in so much debt. Uh, and I was on a 21,000 pound a year salary at Stylist, which didn't go up until I think the last year that I left. So I was, it was very precarious existence. I didn't really have the safety nets that others do. I'm, I definitely have some, but just not the same level that could afford to keep me afloat and pay my rent. So I just thought so many people I knew as well, like young people particularly were in the same kind of debt situation I was and was so bemused that every week we would find ourselves maxed out of our overdraft again. And I thought, why Why am I not seeing enough sort of like literacy around things like overdrafts? Why hadn't I learned about this as a form of debt rather than just free money? And I think particularly at that stage, there wasn't as much of this literature aimed at young women who were stylist audience. So I just I just said, can I write a piece about being broke all the time, please? And what kind of things I can do to sort that out? And partly because a lot of my work has also been trying to figure things out and using people's professional advice through the job I'm doing to figure that out. So the case studies were lots of people that I just knew, which is again, the lack of like ability to research, et cetera, but using your own networks. So cases were people I knew, and I think I probably did do a journey request for that, which is when I talk about this stuff, it comes a lot from me knowing what skills I haven't had and what I wished I'd been taught young when I was younger rather than a sort of indictment of not having this. It's like, I wish this had been ta taught to me. Um, so yeah, so I wrote this piece about money and debt um, because I was really broke. And I think something I always tell people when I talking about getting into journalism saying you need to have especially if you're a freelancer you need to have a regular job alongside your freelancing you need to have something that three or four days a week will pay your rent there is no point writing amazing pieces and having so much stress because you don't actually have a house or a roof over your head and you can't afford basic amenities it's journalism nowadays it's it's important to support yourself and you can still do really great work even if you're doing four days a week somewhere else, because it just means that you're going to have to do sort of journalism that takes longer and is more of a slow burn. And But you'll still get your name out there. It's just a matter of patience. And eventually those commissions will add up to something else. But it's not worth bankrupting yourself to do, I would say. Um, yeah, money has is is been a huge sort of determining factor in my life. And now that I make enough money that I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm comfortable now. It's changed so much about, first of all, the jobs I get to do. Um, it's always a sad factor that the more money you have, I think, the more picky you can be about what you're doing. The more you can pursue passion projects, the more you get to do stuff that in the long run will probably get you even more of whatever you crave, whether that's sort of like the success of knowing people are reading your work and relating to it because it's something you've made that's really special or simply more bylines, whatever your, your, your the thing that you want is. Having the money to take that space, to take that time is such a freedom. And it's disappointing that 
the industry doesn't seem to want to pay or have the cash to pay young people the wages they should be getting. Um, freelance rates in this country are dire. And I say that even speaking from perspective of the own publication that I work for, which is a small independent one where we get paid fine, but the freelance rates are nowhere near as good as what I'd like them to be. And that's been the truth across all sort of media. But even these massive publications, these big broadsheets, a lot of them, you know, the more right-wing ones have tend to have more money. Uh, the Guardian pays okay. But you know, you'll have like the independent or whatever, and they'll be paying one hundred pounds for a one thousand word piece, and it's 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 those rates are really low, and it's it's why why is that? Why is it that our freelance rates in Britain are so low when you go to America and you're getting about five hundred dollars for just a basic opinion piece? You look at the American writers complaining about their freelance rates, and you're like, I would love to have your bottom your bottom barrel freelance rate just once. Um, so those are all things that I think about a lot, and how much money shuts people out of this industry. I think it's really mutually reinforcing as well because you're not going to be able to attract original reporting and you know people aren't going to invest that amount of time to write a thousand words that's really sparkling and and brilliant and new if they're only getting 100 quid so I think it is definitely a problem. Could we move on to your time at Galdem and for any listeners that aren't familiar with the publication could you tell us a little bit about what it's about, where it was when you arrived and how it developed during your time there? Yes of course so Galdem is an alternative independent publication which is set up for people of colour for marginalised genders. Um, It was set up by a group of students led by Liv Little in 2015. When I got there, it was 2020, so about five years after its founding, and it had become, I would say, quite a cult-like, cult, not in a derogatory sense, but cult-like as in a lot of people love Gaudem. They found a real space at Gaudem. Um, and I became the politics editor from 2020 to 2022, I think maybe 2021 to 2022, but I was doing cover as politics editor for a bit in 2020. And then I came back in 2021 as the full-time politics editor. So yeah, I was, I was in charge of sort of the politics brief, which was my first editor role. Taught me a lot, really, really shaped a focus of what it was that I enjoyed doing, what I could be good at doing. Also told me how many shortcomings I had, which was very useful. Were the staff there all from minority ethnic backgrounds? Or what was there a kind of policy that you you had to be from one of those communities to work or to write there? Or how was that um, that issue uh looked up it's a really interesting question because obviously there can't really be a policy under law <laughs> because of the equality quality act 2010 um it was more a case of i think people recognize that this was a space designed for people of minority ethnic backgrounds so the people who were attracted to working there and were more likely to get the jobs because of their um their background and their skill set etc were people from minority ethnic backgrounds so we weren't all minority ethnic staff in one way we had a very diverse group of backgrounds um we yeah it was it ranged we also were diverse in in the sense of not just our ethnicity but um you know we had a lot of disabled workers who were working there we had people of different genders sexual orientations etc um so diversity people often think of it as just applying to your ethnicity but it, it's so much more than that like a diverse workplace doesn't have to be just be about ethnicity which is i think is an important thing people forget um so yeah it was it was all that space it was it was a fascinating place to work it was so illustrative it was lovely in an interpersonal sense um, but it also showed up how little training and structure we're given when you don't have that journalistic background because a lot of us hadn't come from that space. Um, 
you know, we had editors-in-chief who had done journalism masters, et cetera, because a lot of us hadn't come from that space. There was, and it was an interpersonal sort of thing. There was not as many structures that were put in place to prevent sort of like trouble occurring essentially. So if you had a disagreement, then it wouldn't just be a disagreement. It would be interpersonal. It wouldn't be something that could be sorted out through traditional structures. And it also meant that sometimes we would have to bring in external assistance when we were working on a story we didn't have the same resources there was a very big story that Gaudam had been working on for ages and ages and ages recently that uh we worked on with uh the guardian and the bbc and this it was stuck for years when we were covering it and these these papers wouldn't even though they worked on this, but they wouldn't offer legal protection that Galden wouldn't have needed to cover the story properly. And then they turned around at the last minute and they said, we're just going to run this without you. Even though Galden, the Galden reporters and writers had done all the work. And recently, um, some reporters just won like a big award for covering that story at those two big national companies. I understand why they would choose to do that, but it does go to show how you know, people make to pay all this lip service to, you need independent media, we need people who come from different backgrounds. But when it actually comes to working with those people and it comes to trying to support them and get them in and give them that material practical support beyond, Gaudam's really cool, Gaudam's great. And it's like, okay, well, what if you helped contribute with training? Like, we can pay you to do that. What if we worked with you as colleagues and, you know, you you recognize that these people may be slightly less um, trained in the same way that you are, but there's still a story there. They've got access to these contacts. They've got access to these networks. Um, you can support by helping, you know, lend legal support if they get in trouble um, for reporting on a particular story. When it comes to that area, there's a lot more silence and uh, people tend to be missing in action, which is interesting to see. I was going to say, how did you balance your work at Galdem with writing for other outlets? Um, how did you make those new connections? Did people come to you or did you sort of uh, go to them? People came to me for when I wrote for new outlets. I was very lucky. People came to me. I think, again, I think it was the internet. I can't really explain why. There's a multitude of factors. It would have been that, honestly, people would have seen someone probably writing from a minority ethnic background who could kind of string some words together. And at the point when I was coming up, I imagined that there were there was a dearth of those people, particularly in 2020 when Black Lives Matter was all over um, the internet as the phrase du jour. And I think probably people were just looking to fill a gap. So I think a lot of the opportunities I've got have probably been because they needed sort of someone who was brown and wanted to write for them. And luckily that got me in the door, but I do resent feeling like that, <laughs> if that makes sense. What do you and then maybe some of your your peers and, and other writers of your generation feel about traditional ideas of journalistic impartiality and also the the line between journalism and activism. I mean, that's something that's been a lot of discussion about um, in the media in, in the last few years. What are, what are your thoughts on that piece? Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting question. In terms of the line between journalism and activism, I've definitely been called an activist in the past. I would say that what I am is a journalist with a very clear political agenda, and I do not think of myself as objective. I try and when I do reporting, etc., I will report things with all the facts and I will try and build a full story. Um, but I think people should know before going in that I write from 
primarily a left-wing perspective. I'm going to report on stories um, that I think that that appeal to me because of those perspectives I have. I think at com- you know big big broadcasters like the BBC, etc., there's this belief in journalistic impartiality, which is great if it was actually enacted. But the problem is the dial shifts so much when you have a large institution that people are going to tend to think a certain way. And it's funny because both people on the right and the left believe that the BBC is biased towards the other person, like the other side, um, which maybe shows that they are impartial I don't know but it's 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 fascinating to see because I have worked briefly at the BBC and I saw how that 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 process operated and it was you know when you write a piece or you do something it goes through about six different duty editors and all those duty editors are so steeped in what they call BBC values BBC editorial values that slowly the impartiality is actually pulled out of it because it has they think of balance which is not just like has the story got all the facts that are relevant has this story been reported objectively? It's, okay, have we included the opposite opinion? But that's not objectivity if it's not got anything to do with it. And an example I always give is I reported on a piece about five renters in Leeds when, in the early days of when you could win, win your rent back from landlords with a rent repayment order when that just been brought in. And the story was just they won their rent back from their landlord. So why did I have to go to the National Landlords Association and get a positive quote about landlords when it had nothing to do with that? It was a simple story about, you know, this this group of renters has won their rent back because of this legal thing. That was it. I don't need PR for landlords in that story. It has nothing to do with it. But yeah, because of the BBC editorial values, I had to go and put that in. What, can I? I'm just. I'm just. Why? Why do you? Why do you think that's unfair? I think. I think if it was a quote about, you know, the, the, they weren't saying all landlords are terrible, all landlords are dirt. They were like, oh, we we did this, and we went through this legal process, and we got our rent back. That was the story. But to go and be like, we need a specifically positive quote about landlords to make all landlords look great. That's not the story. Like that's not part of the reporting. That's, it didn't have anything to do with with the actual like straight up news reporting I was doing. If it had been a big feature about our landlords terrible, then then I think it would have been relevant. But it's not relevant. It's just a straight news story about a specific case. Could we move on now to your experience working with the New York Times? How has that compared? You know that U.S. style of uh, journalism versus British. It's interesting. U.S. U.S. style journalism. I think because I'm doing opinion writing, it's not completely different. I'm working with the British arm of the New York Times in that the the editor that I work with is is British. I'm writing on British topics. I'm doing opinion writing. Uh, The most interesting thing about it has been the sort of reaction from high profile British journalists who have been affronted that somebody that they don't recognize could be writing about Britain for something as venerated as the New York Times, especially if it's an opinion they disagree with. And it's funny because when you see something in these papers, even when it's clearly marked opinion, then people treat it as if it's like objective news. But it's not. It's, it's a guest essay. It's opinion. And I, I've obviously been guilty in this past, but it was Andrew Neil wrote a big thing about how the New York Times kept... Uh, getting it wrong and the spectator wrote about you know citing several of my pieces that I'd done for them about you know this this view of Britain how can the New York Times say this and it wasn't you know just me as a person it's the New York Times is saying this it's an opinion Andrew Neil had literally written for the New York Times a couple of months later like he writes them all the time he's one of the most respected broadcasters in the country and yet he was getting angry that me a nobody had been allowed to write for the New York Times and had written something that he disagreed with that was what's fascinating. I think if I'd been a name that he recognized and respected, he wouldn't have cared as much and he would have been like, that's their opinion. But because it's a nobody, then he's like, why on earth is this person allowed to write in the, you know, this bastion, the New York Times? I can't believe it, which was really, really does sum up the way that journalism works now in that if you're this younger figure without sort of like a 
a personal brand that other older bee moths like respect and know, then you're you're written off. It's like, who are you? Well, who are you? Rather than is the work good? And how is your time divided now between your your different commitments? So between what are your commitments at Navara now, and then how how does that mix with what you're doing elsewhere? So I work Navara four day week, which is great. We have paid full pay for four day week, um, so we practice what we preach there. And then on Fridays, I do various other bits. I also, if I have time in evenings, etc., then I write things. So I'm writing a lot at the moment. The Guardians are doing quite a lot of columns because I I think for whatever reason, I do a lot of opinion writing because it fits in with the rest of my current work. Um, so it's it's quicker to do things like opinion writing, etc. So I'll usually write those in an evening if they have to be filed the next day. I'll be thinking about it all day. I'll go to the gym, be thinking about it, write it in the evening, perfect it in the morning before I start work at Navarra, which is about 8am. And then on Fridays, I tell myself I have to do all my other work. And then I inevitably don't do it on Fridays and end up having to do it on Saturdays because I can't bring myself to work on the day that I have technically pigeonholed off. So instead I start working on the weekend. I think I work probably too much. They always say work won't love you back, but the problem is I really love work. And I really love the feeling of having accomplished something. So I do far too much and take too much on, complain about it, but enjoy that sufferance. Like I said, it's a real Protestant mentality uh, that I have somehow internalized. And I think in 2023, it's something I need to work on. But again, I don't see that changing anytime soon. It also comes, it also plays into how, what relationships you have with people. For example, I recently got out of a relationship and I found myself throwing myself into my work far more and thinking about, okay, well, you know, I did all this, emotional development as a person now I need to develop as a writer because I think this year I've just looked at my work and thought it's trash it's all trash I need to I need to learn these skills I need to become better like I'm so young there's so much more I need I need to do before I can actually think about whether my work is of good quality or not whether it's good form like I need to play around with things I find myself looking back at the stuff I did earlier that I found easy and wondering was it actually better that I that I because it came easier whereas now I labor over it too much and I'm, I'm making too much of a meal of what I'm writing but that leads nicely on to my final question in your emails to us before the interview you mentioned that you've been reflecting on the craft of writing and, and your own work how do you um evaluate that work we know what's the process beyond whether it was easy or hard to accomplish and and are there any writers that you particularly admire and try and emulate in some way there's so many writers I admire I wouldn't be as arrogant to think I can even ever emulate them yet. It's more that I read them and I think one day I'd like to write something that makes people feel the way you make me feel. Um, so obviously Lisa Taddeo, whose name I might be pronouncing incorrectly, but I know you've had her on the podcast. She's amazing. Uh, David Sedaris, um, writers like that. People who just write in a way that's so vivid and takes you right into the heart of whatever they're writing. I love Megan Nolan. Uh, my friend Annie Lord, I love her writing. There's there's so many, many writers out there that I read and I just, I think rather than trying to emulate, I'm like, I want to make you feel like that. Obviously, Zadie Smith, just all of those, that sort of set. But it's interesting because they write very personal, sort of emotional, emotion-led things. And that that's probably where I'm moving back to eventually. I see it kind of as inevitable in my future, but it's it's almost like I have to make this foray into learning how to do 
better professional objective reporting, which I'm starting to do actual full full on reporting now elsewhere in my career. Um, and that's a skill I'm I'm really trying to hone. So at Navarra, I've started doing just straight up news reporting. I've done bits of before in terms of feature writing, but just properly pure reporting. And that's something I think I need to master. Again, also writing for audio, I really want to perfect that. I think audio is a space where you can do so much that will hone your other writing because it's it's you have to take the listener into the into the story. You have to bring them with you and they can get bored so quickly. I know I do. Um probably people switch off listening to me talk at length without putting any texture into what I'm saying. But it's yeah, it's it's those kind of things that I, I need to hone. So when I evaluate my writing, often I, I think I'm not very good at evaluating at the moment because I look back and I think this wasn't very good. This wasn't very good. The only thing that I look at the moment and I'm pleased with is usually my last lines. I'm good at summing up with like a pithy last line, but the beginning, middle, apart apart from the end, those are the things where I'm like, you need to do better. Um, so at the moment, I think I'm probably not very objective at evaluating my writing because I'm in a real period of sort of critique and that in the long run will improve it, but it's quite difficult to look at now and think, this is terrible. The kind of question for me was that, um, you know, looked at externally, you're extremely accomplished, right? You've you've written for all these places at a relatively early stage in your career. You've had a lot of success, but but talking to us, you've you've been you know quite self critical. You're know, saying that you feel that your writing's not there. You know, you're you you haven't felt they've deserved these positions. Do you think that you know you there's you're maybe being a bit hard on yourself here? Almost certainly, almost certainly, I'm being hard on myself. But I think I wouldn't be sadly where I am if I wasn't a bit hard on myself. I also, I don't get me wrong. I think I'm talented. I think I have talent. I know that is there. It's more that I want to feel I deserve everything I get. And I, I know that sometimes I've gotten these doors because people have just looked around for someone to fill a space. And once I'm there, I can prove that I should be there. But there's so much more I think I'm capable of if I really push myself. I don't think I push myself as near as hard as I need to. Um, and that's not in terms of work rate. I think my work rate's large but i'm doing things that i can do sort of off the cuff because i haven't got the time to do other stuff and what i i I'm, what i'm doing for 2023 is setting some really strong goals you know i need to write this a long form essay i need to do a piece of work that really challenges me in a way i haven't been challenged before i want to stretch myself further because i think only by stretching yourself it's like it's like exercise right only by stretching that muscle and breaking it a little bit will it grow stronger and i think if i rest on my laurels and become complacent then I won't improve in the ways that really matter to me, which is writing something really amazing and powerful that I look at again and I'm just proud of and that speaks to other people. So yeah, I think I'm definitely hard on myself and I wouldn't recommend this mentality as an approach for all young writers out there because it could cripple them. But I also, my therapist always used to say, you come both with a massive dose of uh, sort of like self, like really high self-confidence and self-esteem internally, but what you say externally is is also this sort of like crippling fear that you're not doing enough. And I don't want people to think that I think I'm awful in all these ways. I think I'm I think I can what I can do is really good. I just know that I'm capable of more. And it would be a shame if I didn't explore that to its fullest. I had one um yeah, just one final question if right quickly, which was about working at Navara and how have you found that working there has that had any impact on how you've been perceived at by editors elsewhere in terms of somewhere with a publication with a, an explicit political um stance or has that not had a not been a factor that's so interesting because i thought about this a lot about whether working at navarra has changed how i'm perceived by other editors i would say probably not 
as much as you think because I've been so prominent on the internet. So the people who already wouldn't ask me to write for them, for example, I've never been approached by someone from the Times itself, which is totally fine. And I imagine that won't happen. I don't think the Telegraph are gonna ask me to write for them anytime soon. And I don't think working at Navarra has changed that per se, but it hasn't changed the other opportunities I've had. I think, you know, I, I still go on broadcast media. I've asked on more programs. And I think because Navarra is seen as quite uh it's one of the foremost sort of independent left explicitly left media organizations they often we're kind of mined from for commentators etc when they need like a lefty on the panel so i would say actually probably it's improved opportunities in the sense of broadcast media and writing um but i also think because i have quite a clear persona that is seen as separate to navara i didn't I wasn't shaped by Navara. I wasn't someone who started with Navara. Um, so I'm still seen as somewhat external while still being part of it. It's almost like I'm a, a freelancer who regularly contributes, I think, in people's minds. So it hasn't it hasn't impacted nearly as much as it could have done. But we'll see if I write something really spicy, whether that starts seeing me tied to Navara much more. Well, thank you, Moya, for your time today and wishing you all the very best of luck with your goals in 2023 and beyond. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Moya Lothian-McLean. She has a website, which is moyalothianmclean.co.uk, and she's on Twitter at mlothianmclean. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Moya? I thought it was very interesting to speak to her to get a real insight into what the journalistic landscape has been like for uh, young people coming up and making their initial steps in their careers in the last, I suppose, between five and 10 years. And really interesting to hear her as someone who has done these jobs where you're expected to um, you know, produce an enormous amount of content, essentially, from, from the internet in a short period of time, and who spoke, I thought, pretty thoughtfully about some of the frustrations of of doing that and how she's um you know looked to kind of spread her wings and, and move elsewhere and i also thought she was interesting on her experiences both at kind of legacy media places and in smaller and kind of more startup spheres and how she's been able to to cross those lines what about you what do you think i completely agree with you I, my sort of main takeaway was the modern media landscape and her experience of it and um, how this constant churn of content has affected young journalists in terms of the lack of training and mentorship and crucially the development of those reporting skills, which you just don't get if you're spinning out a tweet into a into a story. And it explains why we've had this sort of shakedown with Vice and other websites um, in terms of producing quality versus quantity. Anyway, Simon, you have been on an odyssey. Yeah, well, I'm now... I'm now in in the Alps as of today. Um, I had a very busy week. I had to clear up my flat, which was extremely stressful. But big thanks to uh, my girlfriend Hyun for all her um, labour with that. It would have been impossible without. We did it together. I should say I didn't uh, demand that she did it. Um, and I'm now um, I'm now in the mountains, uh, initially in France and in Switzerland for this this new book project. So it's very exciting. We're just talking off air earlier about how this is a kind of culmination of really a couple of years of work um, and a lot of planning and things like that um so 
it's very good to be here, but it should should say that this this is not going to interrupt always take notes. I have all my uh, recording equipment here with me, so hopefully from from my God forbid mountain mount, mountain huts uh, things should happen uninterrupted. Anyway, Rachel, what about you? Well, nothing quite so exciting. You've had a birthday though. I have, yes, I have the worst birthday in the calendar year, the second of January. Um, <laughs> yeah, I no no real news to report. I had a lovely Christmas break, and now I've just sort of been looking ahead to the year and trying to plan out some pieces and features that I might want to do. So um, that's always a enjoyable stage and Ra- rachel you do you do love christmas we should be clear with that as well with with the listeners so. you know it's jammy's always such a damp squib after that so yeah i have to keep myself busy with forward planning otherwise i go a bit mad anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon Aikham. and me rachel lloyd our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. our score is by jess danheiser and our graphic design is by james edgar if you'd like to follow us on social media we're on instagram at always take notes on twitter at take notes always if you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, well, I'm there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.